The teaching text for today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a Daenerys. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, church. Uh, My name is David. Uh, If we haven't met, uh, it's good to gather virtually again. I hope you are enjoying your summer, that it's been a a good and refreshing time in many ways. Uh, If you've been able to get away or rest I really pray that you have found much life uh, during this moment. We have kept praying for you and will continue to do so until we meet all together again from being scattered. Uh, I really just want to say this one thing. If you're, uh, if you're uh, looking at this, watching this live or ar- approximately around the date that it broadcasts, um, in, in a couple of weeks, we have our stay treat, and it is the moment that, that we gather again as the people of God here in Brooklyn uh, to, to, to be together, to laugh together, to reconnect, and to begin the fall really well. So I know you have the information. Just want to reiterate that it's a really important moment for our church, and we would love for you to be there. Um, I want to pray just before we jump into to th- today's text. Father, we come um, to this moment from all kinds of places and maybe even all kinds of times. And you transcend time and space. And we ask you today that your truth, your truth that has stood the test of time, that we can still rely on today would, would impact our hearts and lives, would change us, would come by the spirit of truth that you give us to speak to the depths of our being, that we would be uh, made alive through your word, that we would be washed and refreshed by your word and by your spirit today, we pray. Amen. So uh, we're looking at Matthew 22, this encounter that Jesus has uh, with with two groups of people uh, that come to him asking him a question. But uh, as I mentioned a little while ago, our family uh, recently became uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, One of the things you have to do in the process of becoming a U.S. citizen, if you were not born here, is uh, you have to swear an oath uh, as you step into that uh, privilege. And it goes something like this. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America. 
Now, this is uh, interesting. They did not ask us to give up right there our South African citizenship, but they did ask us to be willing to do so. They do this, I think, because if anything happens whereby there is uh, some sort of divided uh, allegiance in our hearts to two different sovereignties, they would be sure, they would want to make sure which way our allegiance would go. Uh, they secure that allegiance by uh, the threat of power and probably also by the compelling seduction of uh, Amazon Prime delivery and Seamless, um, I must confess. Now, the context today is not very dissimilar to that. There is a division of allegiance that is brought to Jesus as he faces this particular question, which is one in a series of encounters that he has to kind of catch him out, to see where he would lie, to see uh, if they could trip him up. Two people represented here are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees represented um, that uh, ha having to pay taxes to Caesar is an infringement on Jewish law. They believe they are under God, under the authority of God. The Herodians were a small group of Jew uh, Jewish people um, loyal to the various members of Herod's family who were ruling at the time. In other words, they were under Herod and they were happy to be under Herod and under his, his authority. The issues here that is being addressed is what authority would Jesus recognize? Where would he land when he is confronted? They wanted him to pick a side. Now, the Pharisees um, were, were in some senses putting on the pretense of righteousness to make it seem like what they were asking for was allegiance to God and for God to be on the throne. But what they really wanted was power so that they could be in control and their religious structure would be the thing that makes the calls. Their religious system is what they wanted in charge and therefore they were looking for a political liberator from the oppression of Rome. The truth uh, of history, just as an aside, shows uh, that Jesus' followers often behaved worse when they possessed political power rather than when they were being persecuted by it. So by the way, when Christians are persecuted, oppressed, if our first solution in situations like that is going towards the need to gain a political majority, a powerful majority, uh, to beat this particular oppression, then we are not much different from some of these groups that are represented here in this particular text. Now, the Herodians also wanted to be on the winning side. They also wanted to be in the place where the side that they were on were in power. So what they did was they gave up some of their convictions, their spiritual convictions, their national convictions, in order to become more like the Roman Empire. They submitted to Rome, and therefore they thought the easiest way to be on the winning side was to pick the side who had already won. So they came to Jesus, these two sides, and asked him, to choose sides. They came maliciously, the text says, and they came to test him. The text says, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you 
hypocrites. Now remember, a hypocrite means actor. You are acting in a certain way. You are wanting one thing, saying one thing, but wanting another. You are duplicitous. And he calls them out on it. And that's really important that he notices what they are trying to do. They also say, surely you are true. You're a true teacher. They're kind of buttering him up. They're trying to get him uh, to, to, to be okay with what they're doing. And then they bring the malice forward. The first thing that Jesus does is he changes the game. He basically goes, hey, I'm not going to play by your rules. He does not play the game of partisan politics in this particular thing, uh, even under a very uh, oppressive Roman rule. He could very easily have done that. Now, remember when the first century believers heard the, the phrase or understood what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven uh, was, their minds didn't go to one day will go to heaven, a place you go after death. They expected the authority of God to come and his appointed person to come and break the oppressive rule that was happening in their lifetime. Their longing was for the kingdom of God, for freedom, for justice, and for the escape from their oppressors. The question in their hearts, though, was how, God, would you do this? We're longing for the same thing, but how is the best way to do it? And these two particular parties that we're talking about today, they both had two different ideas of how it could happen. There were a number of uh, groups like this in Jesus' day. The zealots believed that revolt and overthrowing Rome, uh, uh, being prepared to do so violently, was the way to go. The Essenes, they believed that you should withdraw, you should completely separate yourself so that you remain uncorrupted by the culture. The Sadducees said that change can come through the current systems and so they assimilated into culture and partnered with Rome. And Jesus would say that if you asked the things like, if, if you're asked to, to walk a mile in someone's shoes, which is a reference to something that a Roman soldier could do at any point in time, ask somebody else to, to, to carry things for them, to walk a mile, he says, go two miles. And that freaked the, the zealots out and the, and the Essenes. It was like, surely not. Surely that is not the way to go. He would walk with sinners and he would touch lepers and he would mix with unclean culture being called a drunkard uh, and all these things. And, and that certainly goes against the idea of withdrawing from culture. And so he perpetually offended these groups of people who had preconceived ideas of how liberation would actually come because he kept changing the game. It was like these groups saw the solutions in only two dimensions. And Jesus comes and says, you don't understand. You are playing on the wrong field. So they say, you are true, you are wise. Should you pay taxes to Caesar? He knows if he says yes, he would offend the zealots, the Essenes, the Pharisees. But if he says no, he would be opposing the government that he was under. And he would be called a rebel and he would make enemies of the Sadducees and of Rome itself. He was stuck. But more importantly, if he said yes or he said no, he would be doing something he did not come to do. 
he would be engaging in the kingdoms of this world with the weapons of this world in the way that elevates them as the hope of the world, the hope of a future, making them into idolatrous entities within which we place our hope and our trust. And so he could not say yes and he could not say no because it was not what he was called to do. Remember Psalm 121, there's this definitive declaration regarding this very thing. When I am in trouble, where do I run to? Where do I place my hope? And it says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the maker, the God, the the creator of heaven and earth. In other words, not Well, Christianity should be in political power. That's how we're going to get ahead. Not we should be at peace with our government and do everything they say because that's going to be the best thing for us. Not we need a free market system or a socialist system. Not I don't care about the government. I trust in my own way of providing my own resources, my own finances. No, no, none of those things will ultimately be able to save us and carry the weight of our hope. So address to, to, uh, in order to address this, Jesus does something brilliant. He says to them, bring me a coin. Now, tax in, in Matthew 27, a little bit before this particular passage, uh, they spoke about temple tax, and that's, that's very different. We won't get into that. This particular tax is, is referred to as the tax paid to the government that is in essence being oppressive towards the Jewish people. And that is important to remember. The question, therefore, from the Pharisees particularly is, Jesus, do you support these oppressors? Do you support the people who are persecuting your people? Instead of picking a side, he does something genius. He risks offending them both, not because he tries to or because this is his strategy, a new kind of way of being a cool Christian is just offend everybody and say the right, the, the right things or the wrong things at, at certain times. Um, he is actually acting according to what they said. We know you are true. We know we will find truth with you. And he acts true in this moment. He offends And he says this, why do you put me to the test? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is in this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they went away. Now, we don't know if Jesus himself had a coin on him. Um, that's something that's not answered in this particular text, but we know that he asks them for a coin and we think he does so for a very specific reason. Some scholars believed he asked them for the coin because he demonstrated that they themselves rely on the system that Rome has put in place for their living. That their day-to-day existence was kind of provided for by Rome and therefore we need to, he's expecting them to recognize that there is honor and respect and tax due to the government that has been placed on them. One, one um, uh, author says this, Jesus asked his questioners for a coin, not because he did not possess one, but so as to demonstrate that they themselves used Caesar's money. 
The silver denarius which bore Caesar's head on one side and on the other side the goddess of peace was inscribed Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, chief priest. If the people used Caesar's coinage, they were under obligation to pay back what is owing to them. This is important. And he says to them, give me a coin. And they had the coin. In other words, they had already uh, lived under the provision and the ways of Rome. Now, the, the issue here is the likeness on the coin because uh, the Jewish nation was not to make anything or to buy into anything or subscribe to anything with a, another likeness other than the likeness of God because it, it, it would seem idolatrous that they would put that likeness on it. And this was important because they believed that uh, in temple theology, particularly that as God created the earth, this beautiful earth that in, in, their, in their idea was a temple, a temple within which worship happened, worship of the God, allegiance to the God uh, who, who created and the last thing that happens in a temple is you, you are, uh, are displaying the image of the God that is worshipped within that temple. And the last thing God created in this beautiful temple was human beings. And he put his image in human beings. And this is what Jesus draws on. He says, they carried the coins of Caesar you're already living in this real world. You already honor this real world. And that does not make you bad. He affirms that it, that is necessary in the time that they were living. But, but, but Jesus, they use my tax dollars to do ungodly things, to oppress your people. Yes, but you are under that government and you should understand what respect and honor looks like. But they use it to wage inhumane wars and take over lands and people groups and be oppressive. Yes, but you should pay them what is due as God has allowed them to be in rule here. But they use it to fund abortion and messed up systems that cause harm. Surely we can't support them. Yes, that is true. But we also need to respect and honor those who are put above us. This was a controversial statement that Jesus was making to those who believed that any oppressive government is worth nothing at all. But then he adds this, and this is where he kind of levels the playing field. He could not just level, uh, leave it there. He adds, give to God what is his. And that word render to Caesar and render to God is a word that really, really means give back to Caesar what is his and give back to God what is God. There is a rest restoration that is implied in that word. And Jesus understands the culture he is in. He understands that there is a way that human life works with governments and, and all the complexities that goes with that. And he says, give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. Now, we can criticize the work of governments. We can criticize and we should. We should uh, seek change. We should seek renewal. But that does not mean we should stop doing what is due, uh, giving what is due in our day. Now, uh, the Reformation and, and even some of our, uh, our own government and the separation of church and state has uh, been affected by this passage over the years uh, very, very deeply. But that was not 
the main point or the only point that Jesus was making here. Jesus is affirming the need for civil prudence, but he makes an ultimate claim that supersedes this particular claim. And that claim was this, that ultimately we bear the image of God, every human being, and we are to be returned and given where we are due, just like where the taxes are due. Jesus, do you support this government? Do you look for hope in this government? I submit to it in some sense, he is saying, as it is fitting, but my belonging, you need to understand, is first to my Father in heaven, and so is yours. Give to God what is God's. He is referring to the image of God that is in every human being. Now, he's, he's also through the statement saying, saying this, remember that whatever fear you have of Caesar and of Rome, remember that you need to submit to Caesar who himself bears the image of God and should be given back to God. Jesus is saying, some things are not Caesar's. Some things do not belong to Caesar. Some things do not belong to government. Some things do not belong to those who are in power. And we need to be careful as to what we give. He's saying honor and respect and submission and taxes belong to the government. But the value of human life does not belong to Caesar. It belongs to God. He is saying that respect and generous submission belongs to the government. But that worship does not belong to the government, to Caesar. It belongs to God. He is saying that our cooperation belongs to the ruling bodies. But our hope, our hearts, where we place our trust can never belong to Caesar. Jesus is honoring the government. He is also removing the political distance between people. He is uniting humanity through a greater common denominator than whatever the local circumstances may hold. And that is that they all carry the image of God and therefore all belong to God. Jesus reforms and breaks down divisions between heavily divided people through this statement. And they walk away marveling at his response. In Jesus, the uncontested political power, the rulers meet their match. In Jesus, the political divides in our hearts and families and nation find their right place of importance. And so we see these two massive responses that come from Jesus' demand in this particular text. The first is this. He makes sure that every human being, you and I, understand this. That firstly, as a priority above all, we belong to God. The implication is that you and I bear the image of God and our responsibility and practice should be the right ordering of our hearts, our hopes, our lives, and our allegiance to Him. We need to practice giving ourselves back to Him as He demands in this text. 
to give ourselves to God as the one whose image we bear day after day, church. It is vital that we remind ourselves of this, that we first and foremost, above all things, above all other allegiance, belong to God. We need to daily surrender and consecrate our lives. We need to trust Him and His ways for all the areas of our lives. And the implication is is in this question. What parts of your life, what parts of my life do I need to give back to God because I have taken it from Him? I have taken particular areas of my life and think that they're better served in my hands, in the hands of my spouse, in the hands of my partner, in the hands I can find my hope and fulfillment in these things and not trust God in these areas. My finances, my workplace, my relationships, all of these things. What part of my life do I need to give back to God when he says, render to God what is God's. Secondly, the implication is this. We have to be able to see our enemy differently. So he, 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 he faces these two opposing uh, groups and they walk away marveling that he was able to bridge a divide that they were trying to create. They came to him maliciously trying to create a divide, trying to create a hostility, trying to trip him up. And he is able to Uh, just absolutely masterfully break down that divide and leave them in the same place, marveling together at his response. Jesus calls us to recognize that all humans bear the image of God and thus belong to God. He has, this has massive implications for the responsibility we have towards every human being. This fits perfectly into Jesus' teaching of loving your neighbor and your enemy. It makes sense only if this construct Jesus is giving is the determining human value that all are made in the image of God and worth the dignity of life, even those whom we completely disagree with. Bishop Oscar Romero said this, whoever tortures a human being, whoever abuses a human being, whoever outrages a human being, abuses God's image, and the church takes as its own that cross, that martyrdom. Who in your life do you need today to be reminded that they too carry the image of God? And your response to them is a response to the image of God. Loving our neighbors and our enemies could be the most costly thing that we are called to do, that we might ever need to do in our lives. Historian Philip Jenkins said this once, Christianity is flourishing wonderfully among the poor and the persecuted while it atrophies among the rich and secure. Jesus lived this out in a way that we can all gain the comfort and strength we need to live in this particular reality. He loved his enemies to the point of death. He loved you and I, even when we were still hostile towards him, against him. And still now when we act against him, he still responds in love and reminds us of how much he loved to the point of death. He showed how to value the least 
of the people who were marginalized, ostracized, rejected by society. He was absolutely shamed by the religious powers because of who he hung out with and who he loved. He died and he rose again to show that the overcoming power of a life rightly ordered would be ours if we trusted in him. We look around. We look around in our lives. We identify the struggles, the troubles, the enemies, the relational strife, and we say, God, where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the God, the creator of heaven and earth. And today, church, let's return our hearts, our affection, our allegiance, our trust where it truly belongs to this amazing God. Let us pray. God, it is not easy when we look for solutions to return to you and to be patient and to wait and to trust. I confess my heart wants to fix. My heart wants to jump in. My my heart wants to make things happen. But the first act that we are entrusted with is the giving back of our hope and our trust to you, not to government, not to financial systems, not to jobs, not to relationships, spouses, persons, sexuality, not to any of these things that we think hold the potential of our salvation and our joy, but to return to you. Give us the grace. Call us again by your Spirit today. Stir our hearts to return to you. As we know, according to your word, you stand waiting with open arms to welcome us back. Whether we have rebelled completely or just lost our way in parts of our hearts and lives. Come with your grace and meet us today, we pray. Amen.